Welcome to the I Dare You podcast by United Against Human Trafficking. I'm your host, Elaine Andino, and we believe that together we can end exploitation. Welcome, 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 Adam. Thank you so much for being here. You and I have known each other for quite a while. I'm so excited to get into it today. We're going to be talking about foster care and human trafficking and how it's linked. Um, So, okay, tell me a little bit about you. I knew you back when you worked in the anti-human trafficking movement full time. Now you are with Foster Care Advocacy Center. Yes. Got it out. Yeah. Okay, so tell me a little bit about you. Tell our audience about you and then about... um, what you're doing right now. Cool. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. I, uh, I, I miss podcasting on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. Uh, I did have the honor of interviewing Tamika Walker uh, on, on the podcast that I used to host with Elijah rising another anti-trafficking organization here in the city. Uh, and so I miss this a lot. It feels very good to be inside a studio and talking into a microphone. Um, it's like riding a bicycle and I want to do it more. I love it. Thanks for for having me. It's uh, scratching an itch for me. Um, yeah, so I, um, I first got exposed to the issue of sex trafficking and then, you know, started learning more about human trafficking in general and labor trafficking and, you know, the wider world of trafficking. Um, I think in, you know, it's been so long, uh, like 2010, 2010. Mm -hmm. Um, so like 12 years ago, um, it's kind of a long story, but I was in a different city. I was in Kansas City, Missouri, and I heard somebody talking about the issue of sex trafficking. And I'm a Houston native, right? Born and raised here in the city. I love Houston. I'm Houston yeah. to the core. And But I was in another city. I was in another state and another city. And I heard these people talking about sex trafficking. And they said this, which we've all heard before. Houston, Texas is the number one city in the nation for sex trafficking. Yeah. <clears throat> now, at that moment... My initial reaction was shock because I like had never put those words together, sex trafficking. Like I just, I was just ignorant. Right. Um, but then they're talking about my city, my home, my neighbors, my streets, where my home is, where I, where my faith was formed, where my education occurred, where my family was, uh, you know, growing, um, that, and, and, and here I am, I had to go halfway across the country to learn that my city, my home is the number one city in the entire nation for this issue that I didn't know about. Right, right. That's quite the shock. It was quite the shock and then anger. Sure. <laughs> and then I was mad <laughs> because I was like, you know, I grew up in the church and um, I, I'm very socially active and have always been. And, and so like the knee jerk reaction was, how come nobody told me? Mm. Why did I not know this? Why did I have to come to a different city to find this out? Mm. And so, you know, long story short, one thing led to another, ended up back in Houston. And um, we, I had started a nonprofit that was kind of sputtering. And uh, we just decided to pivot the whole mission of the nonprofit to focus on the issue of sex trafficking in Houston. Partnered with a couple of uh, people who were experts in that field, found a group of about 10 very zealous and young individuals who were willing to do literally anything and stay up very late nights. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so we formed this little group of people to start getting together once a month to go straight into the, um, you know, illicit massage businesses and onto the street and onto Bissonette and things like that to just do outreach, to just do simple outreach. Um, 
and in prayer. It was a faith-based organization. And so we did prayer and outreach and that eventually became a nonprofit, like a, a very large nonprofit. Uh, so we shut down the one that I originally had and we opened up a new nonprofit called Elijah Rising. Uh, and that was in 2012. Yeah. And they're great partners of ours. They're doing amazing work. Yeah. I love and them. so still kicking it. Um, and so when I, I was the original founder of that organization and at that time, the anti-trafficking landscape of Houston was so different, disorganized, to say the least, <laughs> disunified, right, uh, and just in and just splintered. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, law enforcement was not. We have come so far, and we'll we get have. into that. But like, we have come so 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 far in all these years. And so, I worked for Elijah Rising for about four years. I was uh, primarily focused on mobilization, mobilization and awareness, um, and a little bit of development. Uh, left, went off to Baylor, got a master's degree at Baylor. Uh, and then when I was looking for the next step in my career, came back to Houston after being away for four years, came back in 2019, went back on staff with Elijah Rising. I did some anti-trafficking work uh, while I was in Waco, um, but came back on staff at Elijah Rising in 2019 as the development director, which is... Um, they, I was the first development director, well, sort of, kind of, uh, first full-time development director uh, that they had. And To be clear, I was the part-time development director the, before you were that's there. Right. I was trying to remember if you were right before me or <laughs> I, somebody else was right before me. Uh, somebody you. else might have been right before you, actually. I was. I just was there, I don't know. Helping. Yeah, contracting you in know, that area. Morgan was around for a while. Anyways. I replaced Morgan. Okay, there yeah, you go. Yeah. So I was the first like full salaried like, director uh-huh. position that they brought on, and it was me. Yep. And, um, and did that for about two and a half years and departed. So I don't know what the math is on that, but uh, how many months? months that was, but, and then I left Elijah rising in September of 2019. No, sorry, sorry, sorry. September of 2021. So, um, I've been gone for about a year now at yeah. this point and, uh, now work for, as you stated, another nonprofit foster care advocacy center. We are a, uh, which we can get into, but we're a nonprofit law firm working in child welfare. Yeah. I love all of that. Yeah. You've been in this space a lot longer than a lot of people have. I, I'm an OG. As you they are say. an OG yeah. because I know you said in 2010, I would feel the same way. Just anger. I felt the same way because I learned about it in DC Yeah, right. and the, the nonprofit I worked for in DC had a contract to work in Texas on the border. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So again, same thing, a different place. Find out about, found out about yeah. it. That was in 2005. Yeah. Something like yeah. that. So but between 2005, 2006, nobody knew about human trafficking. It was not a thing. No, it wasn't. I mean, yeah. everybody who's being trafficked knew about it, but yeah. you know, <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> none of us did. Yeah. Well, so. it, you know, and now it's such like a buzzword. It's such like a, a topic. Right. And um, it's become very politicized, unfortunately, and, and very polarizing in the way that we approach the issue. And um, I think intersectional issues that such as foster care, which we're about to talk about and how they feed into it. But in those days, my goodness, it was, it was really wild. (laughs) It was. And I, and I like what you said about the intersectionality because, um, those are conversations we're having much more these days. And you as an OG, you remember the days where we knew nothing. We just went in, we tried to do rescues and now we've been having these conversations and it's much more well-rounded the conversations we're having. Without a doubt. And because you've kind of done it from every angle, you've done the outreach, you've done the prayer, you've done, done you know, right. The economic empowerment (laughs) afterwards, all of it. All of it. Yeah. Restorative care, all of it. Yeah. 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 And so now, um, 
what I love is you are still working on it in a way because yeah. you're just working on it with another issue that is so directly attached to it. Exactly. Um, and so the conversations are just more, um, it's like wine. It's just <laughs> more developed. <laughs> yeah, more developed. It's right. the, the, the flavor palette is, is, is really uh, robust and mature. Exactly. There you go. <laughs> yeah. so, so tell me a little bit about what um, yeah. Foster Care Advocacy Center does and the role you're playing there. Yeah. So one of my biggest fears about leaving Elijah Rising uh, a year ago was... Really, one of the biggest hesitations was, oh, my gosh, I'm not going to get to continue to participate in this space because so many of my friends, you, yeah. you know, and like Tamika. Right. And uh, there's so many other people I can think of names and faces from multiple organizations from the landing and from demand disruption and from, you know, all these organizations, so, Kathy, yeah. like all these people are my close friends who we've been working on this issue. Yeah. Maybe we're just all trauma bonded. Right. I don't know. <laughs> Could right? be. But like we're all working on this issue yeah. together and the collaboration mm -hmm. in Houston, Texas is so unique. If you're listening to the podcast from somewhere else, like what we have here is very, very special. You know, when it Ken is. Henry came on the scene and I was meeting with him for the first time, he's like, this is crazy. How much, how much collaboration is existing in the city? Um, and so when I was leaving Elijah rising, my greatest fear was that, Oh man, I don't get to participate anymore. And I have to like work really hard to see my friends and like, yeah, maybe totally. we'll just have to go out for drinks or, you know, whatever. But what's interesting is I understood that foster care and trafficking had an intersection. Of course, we all know that if yep. you're, if you're in the work, you understand that, uh, just anecdotally, right. On the, on, you know, on the streets, if you work with overcomers of trafficking, Guaranteed one of them, at least that you've worked with, has either been in foster care or had their child put into foster care. Right. So they, I knew that they overlapped. Um, and so I just but I got to be honest with you, as an OG, as somebody who started this work in 2010, I did not get it. I mean, I have done all the research. I hosted a podcast for two years. I've interviewed people. I've talked to people. I've been on the streets. I've been in the brothels. I've been all over the place. I've been, you know, uh, in Austin. I, I, I've. I thought I knew it all. I thought I understood. Right. I did not get it. First of all, because foster care is such a complex issue. Um, I think a lot of people have a very poor perception of foster care and, and, and to no fault of their own. It's just because it's such a complex issue that we don't always understand how it works. But we just think of it as like kid in a terrible home environment being abused. Government steps in, saves that child puts them into a system that we all know is underfunded uh, and under understaffed. And so they encounter these difficulties and these vulnerabilities, but hopefully some nice, wealthy, potentially Christian family comes in and adopts them out of this hell. And then bada bing, bada boom, right. problem solved. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, the com and, and while some of those details are in fact the case, that is nowhere near the reality of how it actually goes down most of the time or nor does it help us to understand the real complexities and problems and more importantly for this conversation vulnerabilities right that these children are experiencing in the system um so 
I say all that to get back to what does foster care advocacy center do? Because what we do is extremely complex, (laughs) which as a development director and like the person doing all the communications. Right. Not your friend. It's so hard. Right. It's so hard. You're like, I need an elevator speech. We need a we need a tall building. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. I need 32 floors. Um, So what we do. So foster care advocacy center is a Houston based nonprofit. Uh, We are a nonprofit law firm. We are a multidisciplinary law firm. So I I said it that way on purpose because what makes us unique is we not only have a staff of five attorneys that have experience in all sorts of realms uh, to represent either parents or children involved in a child welfare case, um, but we also have a team of social workers. We have a doctorate of social work who leads our social work uh, program. And then we have a lived experience parent partner uh, who is an overcomer. And they, so when, when you become a client of FCAC, you not only get this zealous legal representation, but you also get this expert social services support. And those two things combined are what makes the difference. And we are the only organization in the state of Texas that does this for child welfare. We have a pilot program that's in Waco. So Technically, we're not the only organization now, but they are our they are our pilot because right. uh, we do have aspirations to go statewide eventually. Um, but when a kid comes into the foster care system, there is a massive legal scenario that begins to move. What I mean by that is you can't just take kids away from their parents and just like and and not have a legal representation um let me let me put it this way it all goes into the courts right right (laughs) yeah because your kids are yours exactly so if the state of texas is going to come take your kids they got to prove up that they can do that legally right Mm -hmm. so the involvement of of attorneys is critical which i think the general public i did not understand this right so Elaine has children, right? So something happens at Elaine's house and Elaine has, uh, sends her kid to school and that kid goes to the nurse's office and let's say they have an injury or something is wrong. And that kid says something that makes that individual think that some sort of neglect or abuse has taken place in the home. They will call child welfare, which is, uh, which is under, uh, the control of an organization, uh, a, a government entity called the Department of Family and Protective Services in the state of Texas. They oversee child protective services, CPS, which is what we're probably most familiar with, but they also oversee APS, adult protective services. So when you talk about CPS, you're also talking about DFPS, the Department of Family and Protective Services, which is a state level agency, right? You have local CPS workers, state level agency is DFPS that oversees all that. So this mandatory reporter in the school might call up uh, CPS and say, Hey, I got this kid. They said this thing. I see this evidence, yada, yada. And this investigation begins. Um, at that point, you as a parent, you're not entitled to legal representation, although some legal things have just begun. Right, right. Right. The state of Texas is now actively investigating you, your home, your child and everyone else involved in the situation to see if whether or not you are safe enough to keep that child with. Um, and there's this gray space right then and there. So then let's say they go in, they investigate. Sure enough, uh, you know, you're not feeding your kids. He ha- your child hasn't eaten in three weeks, whatever. Uh, and they go, oh, yeah, the, the CPS investigator is, oh, yeah, this is dangerous. We need to remove this kid. Well, then they go in front of a judge, a family court judge here in Harris County, Harris County judge. And they say, hey, this kid, you know, here's the evidence. Here's the things. Um, 
and this is a very basic case, right? This can take a thousand different directions, sure. but just like just summary for people listening to understand. Well, so then they go before a judge and then they remove that child. Well, at that point, everybody has to be entitled to representation. The mother has to be, has to have an attorney. The father has to have an attorney. The child has to have an attorney. The state of Texas has to have an attorney, DFPS, uh, which they have their own attorneys. Everybody has to have legal representation and you're not even including the CPS, uh, investigator and the CPS worker that are working the case. So all these people come onto the scene and depending on the age of the kid, maybe the court appoints um, child advocates. So now there's another person and kids can receive up to two attorneys, an attorney ad litem and a guardian ad litem. So FCAC, and for those of you who can't see, the eyes are wide staring right. back at me right now. <laughs> they They're are like, like that is a lot. It is a lot, but it's a good thing, right? You need everybody to have legal protection and yes, representation. Right. The deal is, if you can't afford an attorney, one will be provided for you. Right. Correct? Yeah. Well, kids can't afford attorneys, right? And and a lot of the parents, the majority of people that are having their children removed from them in Harris County, really in the United States, are are not wealthy people. Sure. They don't have the ability to just call up the lawyer, the family law lawyer to go fight CPS. A lot of people do. It happens. Okay. Mm -hmm. But most don't. Right. Hello. That's where FCAC comes in. Yeah. So when that court has this whole situation standing in front of them and they need to fill all these attorney slots, FCAC is one of those people. We will either be appointed to represent a parent, that would be the mother or the father, or we are appointed to represent the child in the case. Now, sometimes there's multiple siblings. So if it's like a sibling group of four, we'll actually get all four siblings or maybe it's not. Again, more complexities that's not necessary to get into at this moment. But then that starts the process of whether or not that child will be reunited with their parent. And so we get appointed to like the most complex cases. Our attorneys have a history of working with um, the most difficult situations. So children who have, uh, you know, mental illness, mental health issues, or, uh, you know, even the most physical, you know, D issues, but also DID or, like you know, there's just a million things that I could say here, but um, we get a lot of the most difficult cases you could imagine. If you've, what I like to tell people is if you've seen a child welfare case on the six o'clock evening news, most likely we have been appointed to represent those kids or a parent in that case, um, just because we have that reputation. Also, we have a multidisciplinary approach. Yeah. We have social workers on staff that can help. So, the goal there, though, is there's there's multiple outcomes, but primarily in that court case, what's going to happen is that child's going to be reunited, reunified with their family, or they are going to remain in state custody, or they're going to eventually be adopted. So there's multiple outcomes. I feel like it's really important to set this stage because you have to understand all of this to understand then what happens down the line. Exactly. So exactly. paint me a picture okay. of, I, I know there's a thousand answers to this one too, but paint me a picture of the average, who's, who's in foster care? What yeah. are the average demographics? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Average, how many placements Great. do kids go through? So that answer is going to change state to state, okay. county to county. Mm -hmm. For example... Uh, there are over 4,000 children in the foster care system in Harris County, which is the county we sit in right now, uh, which is Houston, Texas, but also right. incorporates. That is so many kids. That is more than the entire state of Louisiana combined. 4,000. And our neighboring state has less than that statewide. 
Wow. And I'm talking about one county. Now, granted, we are like the third largest county in the nation. Right. We're a big county, but still, we're a big state too. But still. (laughs) Right. So, who is it? Was your question. Uh, Demographically, if that's what we want to talk about, it is black and brown kids. Mm -hmm. 70 plus percent are uh, kids of color. And usually they are. Well, you know, I don't, I don't want to lie. So I don't know what the average age is. I would imagine that the average age is um, like under 12. But, you know, don't quote me on that. I actually don't know that off the top of my head. Uh, but young. But yeah. when they come into care, if they've been in care for longer than a year, they're a teenager. Because most of the kids that languish in the system are teenagers for multiple reasons. Uh, primarily... Because foster homes usually won't take kids that are difficult. Now, a lot of them do. We have incredible foster homes. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not talking bad about foster homes. That's actually what we need more of. Uh, but adoptions, right? People don't want to adopt a 17-year-old uh, with all these behavioral issues, right? And so they just languish mm-hmm. in the system. Um, and they will either be, be in a foster home or they can be in something called an RTC, which is a residential treatment center or um, like a like a congregant home, right. might be an easier way to put it. Um, or the third option is they are CWAP, which is a whole other crisis that we could talk about here. Yeah, do a brief explanation of it. So CWAP is an acronym. It stands for Child Without Placement. C-W-O-P, CWAP. And so this is a crisis in the state of Texas, for sure, uh, and in Harris County, for sure. There are at least 100 kids, usually on average, that number fluctuates day to day, but there are on average about 100 kids that are in CWAP at any given time. So what does that mean? That means they don't have a foster home that they're in. They don't have a, uh, a facility that they're in, a congregant home that they're in. They literally have no place. But the state of Texas is required by law to house them, feed them, care for them, protect them. But if they don't have a place to do that, where do they go? Well, for a while, they were just like sleeping on the floor of CPS workers' offices. Now, the state of Texas, you know, this has been in the news for a couple of years now. So they're really working hard. But now they're basically just being put in hotels and motel rooms. Mm -hmm. And because they're because their guardian, their legal guardian is the state of Texas, they have to have someone with them at all times. But that person is a CPS worker. To be clear, to be a CPS worker, you are not a licensed social worker. Don't have to have a degree in social work. You don't have to have a degree in in, in, none of that. You you went through the system, through the CPS system. And again, I'm not talking about about, we, we love we need CPS workers. Right. But they are not always equipped and trained with the necessary tools to be able to take care of a 16-year-old who literally has no place to go. And please remember, CPS workers are not law enforcement agents. Right. So they cannot hold that child against their will. They can't force them to stay in that office building or in that hotel room. Right. So um, so that's what CWAP is. So CWAP is where we're having a ton of issues because these kids are basically just on the streets. I mean, they're just basically homeless kids. Yes. I'm. So then you start really seeing the link between human trafficking because, right, what happens then the second? So we know, we know traffickers look for kids who don't have homes and who are vulnerable. So the second that a kid really doesn't have a home, it's not like they ran away, but, oh, they're going to go home and see their mom tomorrow. They don't have a home to go back to. And they've been shuffled around for years. You have a trafficker walk up and be like... Hey, baby girl, I love you. I got a place for you to stay. And a sandwich. And a, right. 
that's a pretty strong yeah. lure. So this is the deal, right? Like I, my, my favorite definition of trafficking is the exploitation of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I, I stole that as a quote. It's a quote. Um, people always used to ask like, well, how do people get into trafficking? You know, are they kidnapped or, you know, whatever it's like, well, yeah, sure. Some are the vast majority, right. Have had some vulnerability in their life exploited by someone who's intentionally exploiting vulnerabilities. And those vulnerabilities can be myriad, right? It could be racism for sure. It can be economic. It can be homelessness. It can be hunger. It can be fill in the blank. Right. Um, and so when you, but when you conceive of, trafficking as this exploitation of vulnerability, then you start to see the issue as, okay, well, how do we fix it? How do we stop it? How do we prevent it? Well, you look for those vulnerabilities. Now we're talking about intersectionality, right? Right. Well, what are the vulnerabilities? Who are the most vulnerable among us? Well, those experiencing homelessness, for sure. We get that. Those who have addictions, for sure. We understand that. Um, You know, uh, the the uh, 14-year-old black girl, Right. Who uh, has just been kicked out of her house for whatever reason? Sure. She she has a vulnerability. Right. But when you consider foster care kids that literally have no support system, mm-hmm. perhaps they have no family. Maybe maybe their family of origin. They don't have a connection to anymore. They don't trust law enforcement. They don't trust the state government because they're the CPS workers. Who do they trust? Who do they have to rely upon? Right. Maybe they've moved between 12 different foster homes. They, they can't even trust the stable family that you see, you know, maybe in like the sitcom on TV. Exactly. Who, who do they have? Mm-hmm. So you're right. So to exploit that vulnerability, well, you don't have to put in a whole lot of work, do you? No, not at all. And then if you have no or very little history on what a healthy relationship looks like. It got to. Right. So this just feels like a normal relationship anyways. Right. Okay, so to set the stage fully, I pulled a couple of stats from NetMEC, which is, how do you all, I always, but it's our national, if kids go missing. National Center of Missing and Exploited Children. Thank you. Okay, so in 2016, 80% of the likely child sex trafficking victims reported were missing from foster care or social services. In 2013, 60% of the child trafficking victims recovered as a part of an FBI nationwide raid from over 70 cities were children from foster care or group homes. 60%. 60%. That's, I mean, that is huge. In 2013, 85 of the trafficking victims in New York yeah. had prior child welfare involvement. 85. Yeah. That's a part of that same FBI thing. So that, that's that's kind of the biggest study we point to is that 2013 law enforcement, the FBI raid uh, situation there where a lot of those statistics came out of and a lot of the research started really focusing on this intersectional issue between foster care and trafficking after that event because the numbers were so incredibly <laughs> high. Right. Every single kid had some measure of foster care involvement. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to read a couple more. Yeah, go for it. yeah there's more. <laughs> right. There's so many more. Uh, so in 2014, 130 victims of sex trafficking were identified in Connecticut. 98% were involved with the child welfare system 98%. in summer. 98%. So if you're a trafficker, you're a business person. Right. It's all economics. It doesn't take long to figure out, hey, here's a total supply that I can go for Mm -hmm. that nobody else in the U S even cares about. Mm -hmm. So if I need to be pimping somebody out, Mm -hmm. these kids want a home. They don't know any better. Nobody even is keeping tabs of where they're going. Heck, they're not even putting them in the homes. They're putting them in hotels. Used to, it wasn't even part of the law. Now it's part of the law. I don't know how much it happens, but um, if kids go missing, 
the CPS worker is required to actually put on Amber Alert. But even before that, nobody was putting out Amber Alerts. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, the flow is just incredible. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's staggering once you start realizing how easy it is. Well, and especially there's another there's another factor here too, Elaine. It, it is um, especially when we get into older youth who are uh, in care. In care is the way we refer to like in the custody of the state. They're they're in foster care, um, especially with like the CWAP teens. Um, you have this situation where these teenagers understand that they. Their resources are limited. Um, their support networks are all but gone. But they know that if they can make it out to Bissonette, that there's some real quick money out there. Right. Um, and so we, the, you know, anecdotally, I should say, we see these kids that will walk out of their placement or walk out of CWAP, which is no placement at all, go turn a couple tricks, make some money, go buy a cell phone or drugs or food. Right. And then come right on back. Because it's about, it's about wanting to control our own lives too, right? Yeah. These kids have been shuffled around. They've been told what's going to happen to them. Treated They're like cattle in many cases. Exactly. Yes. So, okay. In my mind now, well, I know to get control when I feel like it's control. I can go out, turn a couple of tricks. Now I have my own phone. Yep. I can maybe buy some meals that I want to buy. Yeah. A buy some clothes. A little bit of independence. Yeah. It's dangerous, is it not? Exactly. Yeah. The other thing, too, is all these kids are required to be in school. So, like, even if they don't have a stable placement, they are still supposed to be in the high school or the middle school or the elementary school, right? The state of Texas has an obligation to educate these children no matter where they are, right? Foster families have to have kids in school, right? Right. Um, CWAP kids have to be going to school. Now, whether or not they do, that's a whole other situation, right? You know, how do you, truancy issues are real for kids who yeah. have stable homes, you know? Right. So, um, <laughs> but again, we know that we know that recruiting, we know that trafficking, recruiting and spotting occurs in our high school hallways, mm -hmm. in, in our malls. We, we know this happens. We know that there are recruiters in these hallways that are looking for these kids. Um, and all these foster kids, they're in these schools. So you don't even necessarily have to be standing on a street corner or down at the stop and go. Sorry, stop and go is like not a thing anymore. Uh, 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 the Chevron that's station. That's hysterical. That was a huge, we are, that's a we're old, over 30. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Google stop and go. Yeah. I think it was bought up by Valero. They're down at the, the Valero, <laughs> right? right? Um, you don't even have to do that. You just have to like encounter them where they are, which you know where they are. Exactly. They're kids. Right. We know where they are, mm -hmm. right? And so it just becomes... They become, I hate to put it this way, but ripe for the picking. And and also, recently, sorry, I, I might be getting ahead of the... Go for <laughs> I was it. going to get into the news story recently. No, that's exactly what I was going to say. Okay. Add the layer of the news story. Yeah, so like, look, I understand. I'm all for government bu bureaucracy. I know. Don't shoot me, right? Don't <laughs> at me. I am for government bureaucracy. I am for a functioning government doing its job to take care of vulnerable individuals who can't take care of themselves. I'm all for social support systems. Mm -hmm. I've, I've been doing it in the nonprofit sector for over a decade. Right. I'm all about it. Mm -hmm. I understand firsthand how difficult it is to take care of people and to provide for them and, and to, um, Help them help themselves, so right. to speak, to receive the services that we are trying to give them. I understand how difficult it is to fund important 
roles, staffing roles that have so much secondary and vicarious trauma that you can't sleep at night. Right. Been there, done that. Yeah. Living it some days. Mm-hmm. Right. I get it. And I get that the bigger an agency gets, the harder it is to manage, the harder it is to keep safe, the harder it is to maintain your um, quality of staffing when you can't pay people what they deserve and you can't provide them the the, the uh, schedules that they want. You can't provide them the, the work-life balance that they need. I get it. Right. But this is DFPS. And the state of Texas has an obligation to run this agency at the highest capacity Highest quality possible. That that means ensuring that your staff are not predators, right? Right, uh, or just uh, I can't, uh, or, or just people who take shortcuts, right? You have an obligation to protect these children that are legally your children. And I know that's hard. I know the funding has been cut time and time again. I know the system is broken. I know the the staffing structures are all out of whack. Turnover is high. I'm giving a lot of grace here. I mean, you are. I, you are. However. However, recently in the news in it is, Texas. It is getting worse and worse yeah. and worse. So I'm going to do two news stories. Okay. All right. And you'll cut me it. off if we need to like change tape or whatever. <laughs> two news stories. I've really got three, but we're going to get to the third one here in a little bit. So first of all, recently in the past two weeks, it came out <laughs> this kid who is in care. She's 17 years old. She, uh, I'm not going to get into the details of why she's in foster care. First of all, that shouldn't matter. She is where she is. She's in state custody. She has a CPS worker. Every kid in foster care has a CPS worker. Now, most of the kids, you know, they'll have five different CPS workers because turnover is so high. This person got a new CP- CPS worker and this child was um, asking for some resources, looking for some support from her CPS worker in some certain areas. And this CPS worker kept giving her the, you know, saying no, giving her the runaround. That's common. That happens. CPS, their hands are tied in a lot of ways, right? They can't provide a lot of things. They can't, you know, whatever. Unfortunately, this CPS worker, mind you, a state employee, an employee of the state of Texas Department of Family and Protective Services, who should be vetted, who should have oversight. This employee suggested to their client, this minor, this child in state custody and state care said, well, if you want money for that, why don't you go out on a bisonette and turn a couple tricks? They suggested it. Mm-hmm. It's one thing for us to talk about the vulnerability of children and them doing it on their own volition. Right. It's one thing for us to talk about traffickers like sneaking up to the, the hallways of the high school and recruiting kids out of the high school because they see that they have no one to pick them up after school. Right. It's another thing for an employee of the state of Texas to say, hey, why don't you go turn tricks? And it's my understanding this was not the first time, this but w- the CPS worker had been doing it so frequently. Come on, Elaine. The- girl had decided to record her CPS worker so people would believe her that her CPS worker was telling so her to go up. So her little cell phone. Because nothing is done in private anymore. Right. She pulls out her little cell phone because she knew that this was not good and recorded the CPS. Got caught him. Caught him on tape. And it's like, this one's being caught. But of course, it begs the question, how often does this happen? Who knows? Again, I know it's hard out there in these streets. I know it's difficult to do this job. I know you are underpaid. You're undersupported. I get it. But that's not appropriate. Right. That is not the answer. That is not the answer. So sickening. Okay. Story time number two. Okay. 
So another thing that the state of Texas does, this is common in all states, right? You have these congregant care facilities, right? And they each have their own kind of deal. Like maybe you have, maybe there's like one where a bunch of the foster kids all have, um, you know, um, learning disabilities, right? Or maybe one, uh, is for kids who have all experienced, um, you know, uh, drug toxicity, right? And they're, they're like, um, either have addiction problems or they were born with an addiction or whatever the case, right? And so they have this facility set up for these kids where they take care of them and it's specialized, right? Or maybe they have, you know, severe physical, uh, ability limitations. And so they have these congregant homes where, where these kids are all taken care of in the same place. It's specialized, right? They're in foster care, but it's all, it's all taken place in this, in this facility. These facilities have to be licensed by the state of Texas. They have to be regulated by the state of Texas. They have to have oversight, reporting, finances, because they also get money from the state of Texas. Right. Now, not all of them are fully funded by the state. A lot of them are like a quasi government agency. So what they'll have to do is they get a lot of state money and then they have to do a little fundraising on the side as well, depending on like infrastructure or buildings or, you know, whatever they need um, events and food and stuff like that. So the system works pretty well. We don't have near enough of them. We are short by hundreds of beds in the state, which is why we have a CWAP problem. Um, But all of these facilities, Elaine, have government oversight. Yeah. Because they have government funding. So in March of 2022, this news story comes out that I'm going to name drop. I, 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 you know, I'm. Allegedly, the Refuge of Texas, yeah. which is a uh, a DMST for sorry, uh, which is a facility that I just described, a state uh, funded, state regulated foster care home for girls who are domestic minor sex trafficking victims. That's DMST. Um, this that was their specialized care in Bastrop, Texas. So they had oh, I might get this number wrong. I think seventy. 70 residents. Yeah, that was what I thought too. Yeah. All female, all underage, they, these are children, all survivors of commercial sexual exploitation. Turns out that two employees at this state regulated, state funded facility were allegedly creating pornographic material of these children. And turning them out, pimping them, allegedly. This organization, the Refuge of Texas, got there's okay. Look, just go. You can go Google the news story. It was a lot of back and forth. Um, Texas Rangers are saying one thing. The 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 agency is saying one thing. Uh, the Refuge is saying one thing. There's lots of confusion. But essentially, what happened was the agent. The agency, by the agency, I mean CPS, DFPS. Sorry, mm-hmm. try to get my vernacular. Like, I hear you. You're doing great. <laughs> the agency became aware of the issue, and the refuge, the facility became aware of the issue, and they didn't do anything about it, except for like a reprimand, like, "Hey, just stop it." Sickening. Are you kidding me? That is sickening. You are a DMST shelter. You, you know the experience of these young children, these girls. And you are going to exploit them once again, allegedly. They got shut down. It just it, They did get shut down, which I'm so thankful for. Well, it because is, the state has to regulate them and the state was like, oh, we out of here. And they pulled it. Right, exactly. But that's 70 beds that just came off right. the registry for kids who need beds. Right. So, so the, so the, sorry, you were going to say, sorry. I'm, I'm well, no, I mean, it just, 
It never ceases to surprise me and shock me at how many people are willing to hurt kids Mm -hmm. and exploit children. And there's such an idea of throwaway children in so many people's minds. Less than human. Right. And yeah, we can do this. It's It's not that bad. Just go ahead and stop it. No thought about, oh, maybe we should get these girls some care and deal with that or send reinforcements to help. Yeah. For example, in this case specifically, the Texas Rangers were called in as the law enforcement agency to oversee that because, again, state funded, state regulated facilities. So the state police go in and uh, they didn't do anything. The two employees in question were not arrested. They left because the facility fired them and said, let us have your keys. You're fired now because of all this leave. But there was no legal. They walked away with impunity, which is incredible because it's illegal on every single front. It's Come not on. like it was like bad ethics. It's worse than illegal. <laughs> right. You re-exploited children. It's like you have every law on the book you need to arrest them. Now, they might be. I haven't checked in on that story in a, in a month or so. So maybe they maybe they're arrested now. I don't know. Fact check me on on the outcome, because I know it's still in the courts. And I know that the refuge, I think, is still trying to come back online, but um, in different capacities. Do you want to be their development director? <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine how hard that would be? What's crazy is I actually know some people on their staff. And I was like, oh. Ugh. Um because, you know, it's, it is. I mean, the anti-trafficking world is kind of a family. And, it is. Um, I felt really bad for them, of course. But uh, you can't allow that kind of stuff to happen on, on your watch. And if you do, now I'm on a soapbox. If you do, say sorry. Right. We did it. I apologize. It'll mm-hmm. never happen again. Here's how everybody's going to be reprimanded. And here's restitution. Yeah. Don't fight it. And, and I think to the point about us being a small group, it's like we understand the limited amount of resources, both financially to Come support on. what we need, yes. the limited amount of beds that you spoke about, yes. the limited amount of attention, good attention paid to this right. issue with good solutions. Right. So when something like this happens, it affects all of us. All of us. Deeply. Yep. It affects us Emotionally and personally, but it also affects people's perspectives of the work. I'm telling you. And yeah, it's just layered. It it's it, yeah, it's deeply layered. So that's why we get on soapboxes for things that's like why we this. We get on soapboxes, especially for those of us who have been doing this for a decade or two. We we don't need any more negative press. Right. You know, we're just all out here trying to do the right thing. Right. And some people aren't. Let's get on another soapbox. Let's, show go. Clip. Let's go. I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah. Okay. So we also talk a lot in the human trafficking space about different people, different vulnerabilities. Yes. All of us know the LGBTQI plus community, high vulnerability, high vulnerability, the kids that are trans, Yep. very high vulnerability for so many different things. Right. So now tell me about what the state of Texas is currently doing. So this is my real soapbox y'all. Um, Again, this is complex. Right. So quick rundown. Earlier this year, um, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, and the attorney general of Texas, Ken Paxton, who are both on the ballot November 8th uh, or November, whatever the November date is for the election this year, uh, November 2022, both are up for reelection. Vote the way you want. These two individuals. um, Long story short. I'm trying to, it, there's so many, there's so many things, uh, that, so there was a bill in the most recent legislature. No, I'll tell that story another time. Okay. Texas has been trying to do this to trans kids for a while. Mm-hmm. We have shut it down multiple times. 
this year, earlier this year, the governor and the attorney general, so Abbott and Paxton, get together. Paxton, who is the attorney general, like the top, you know, legal authority in the state of Texas, writes an opinion. So this is not like a legislation. This this didn't come from the Texas state house. This didn't come from Abbott's office. This came Mm -hmm. from the attorney general. He writes an opinion, which is technically not legally binding, but enforceable, indeed enforceable, because it comes from state agency. He says, providing gender affirming medical care for transgender youth is, in his opinion, child abuse. Okay, I'm going to do it one more time. Providing gender affirming care to a minor is child abuse. That's what the attorney general said. He sends that over to uh, the governor, Greg Abbott. Greg Abbott says, yep, sure is. Signs off on it. Now, remember, what's the state agency that's in charge of taking care of kids? DFPS. So they, the, the directors of DFPS, that whole agency operates at the pleasure of the governor. This is all state politics and all state agencies, all right. state funding. So you have the attorney general and the governor both say gender affirming care is now child abuse. We interpret this to be child abuse. So then they go to DFPS, the director of DFPS, and say, hey, Appoint somebody. It's time to go. We're going to start investigating the families of transgender youth who are receiving gender affirming care for child abuse. Hold the phone. We'll get back to this story. Let me put one more detail in that's going to make you pull your hair out. Go for it. Ken Paxton, the attorney general who's on the upcoming ballot, had a meeting, a dinner, very nice dinner with a family of a transgender girl. With, with their parents. They all show up to this dinner and the parents of this transgender child thought they were having dinner with the attorney general of Texas because they thought he was genuinely trying to understand the perspective of, of parents providing gender affirming care for a trans youth. Right. They have this dinner. They talk it out. The parents say conversation went pretty well. Dinner's over. Paxton leaves. Then... Attorney General of Texas, Ken Paxton, who's on the ballot coming up this November, immediately turns around and instructs the agency to investigate this family that he just had dinner with for child abuse for administering gender affirming care. It just makes your stomach turn. It is. I'm sorry for those of you who want to delete this podcast now. That is evil, in my opinion. (laughs) That is that is that is not good. Because did I not just explain to you that the state of Texas is having children in their care be exploited? They have their own employees telling kids to go turn tricks on Bissonette. Mm -hmm. They don't have enough beds. They don't have enough money. They don't have enough employees. They don't have enough support and they don't have enough strategy to deal with this issue. We all know in the anti-trafficking space that these kids are vulnerable to traffickers. 98% of them are being, right. of the ones that we recover from trafficking yeah. stings have been in foster care. Right. So you're telling me, state of Texas, you're telling me, Governor Abbott and Ken Paxton, that you want to increase the number of kids coming into foster care in Texas? And the way you want to increase that number is by taking them away from parents who are giving them medical care, psychological care. You're telling me that it is abusive for a parent to give their child potentially life-saving medical and psychological care. And you say that that is abuse and you want to remove them and put them into this system? 
You gotta be kidding me. Wow. So many strong points. Thank you so much for breaking that down, Adam. So all of our listeners, we're going to continue this discussion in part two. So come back and join us as we continue the discussion around foster care, trafficking, our current legislative policies here in Texas. You don't want to miss it. And of course, we'll always end with how you can get involved as well. See you then. Thank you for listening to I Dare You. We'd love to hear from you. And if you've completed one of our dares or have a suggestion for future episodes or just want to learn how to further engage in ending trafficking. You can find us on all major social media platforms or feel free to shoot us an email at podcast at uht.org.